Yes, it's time for the Studio Live Today podcast here on, funnily enough, Studio Live Today. Welcome aboard today on the show. We're talking nostalgia. We're asking you the question, what was the first piece of kit you used for home recording? Was it a boombox? Was it your iPhone? Was it a four-track recorder? Are you all fancy? Was it a high-def Pro Tools rig. I don't know. So if you are here live, we are recording this podcast live to tape here on YouTube. So for the folks who are here live on YouTube, let us know what it was. What did you use when you first started recording? The first recording you can remember doing in your home, what did you use? Or did you just go straight to the studio? Did you did you skip the whole home recording thing? Maybe. Uh, we'll also be talking about capturing analog video. Maybe you got some old, maybe you've got some old camcorder footage or some old VHS tapes of you playing with a band in 1987. How do you capture that in a digital environment? Well, it's easier than you might think. We'll be chatting a little bit about that. And we'll be talking about catastrophizing as well. I've talked about this in the past, but I had I had a thought this week and I was chatting to some folks and uh, and dealing with the catastrophizing phenomenon which is thinking that the worst thing might happen when really it's the most logical thing is that the most likely thing to happen is the most likely thing to happen. But our little brains, the things sloshing around in our noggins, they don't do us any favours, do they? They make it uh, difficult sometimes. Uh, if you would like to check out the audio version and you're watching the video, just go to studiolivetoday.com slash podcast. If you're on the audio version and you want to check out the video, head on over to studiolivetoday.com, jump over to the YouTube channel. The podcast will be there for you. You can either watch it live or if you don't want any of the, the flim flam, you don't want any of the stuff at the start or the end, you can watch the cleaned up version as well. So uh, thank you everyone for being here today. Let's get ourselves started, shall we? So what was the first piece of gear that I used in the home studio? Well, for me, it was a tape recorder. So I vividly remember an old tape deck that we had. It was a national tape deck, uh, which was like part of Panasonic, the national Panasonic brand, which is still around as Panasonic these days. And it had like a little three and a half mil microphone jack. And we had this little tiny microphone, a little mono microphone. You'd plug that in and you record. And the first thing I really remember recording was the family keyboard, the old Casio. So you'd, you'd hit the, the salsa or the bossa nova button and you'd play along with that. And I remember recording in some ideas onto that. The whole concept of multi-tracking wasn't really there because it was a tape. How, how do you multi-track? How do you record multiple things onto a tape? Well, that's where <laughs> I got the bright idea. And look, a lot of other people have had this of getting two tape decks and what you do see is you get two boom boxes and you face them off against each other. You play on one, you record on the other, and then you play something else. So I would start working out, like playing, getting a drum part or the backing track and then playing that back and trying to play a lead part over the top. So that was kind of my first experience with multi-track recording. And then it got to the point where I'm like, oh, uh, this, this is a little bit tricky to do this. I need to go out there and find a way to record multi-tracks a little better. And that's when I bought my first four-track recorder, the great, the wonderful, the thing I wish I still had, the Tascam uh, 424 Mark II, which was the very first four-track tape recorder I had. And that was a game changer, because in case you didn't know, in case you're newer or you maybe you weren't around in the, the tape days, 
four track recorders were amazing. They allowed you to record on one track and then play back that track while recording on a second track. And what they actually did, it wasn't just the two tracks. The reason it was called a four track is it used the other side of the tape. So you could only record on one side of the tape because it had four heads and each of those heads could record on the left right track on the front or the left right track on the back. So you had the ability to record four tracks at once or you could record one track, then play back that track while recording a second. And then when you had three, what you do see is you'd be able to bounce those tracks all down to your track four and then record on one, two, three again and then rebounce them and then record. So it was just this constant thing. And yes, you would lose quality every time, but it was a lot of fun to do and uh, it was a great way to write demos and to record things as well. Uh, so yeah, that, that was the, where we were at. My first digital experience was in tracking. So on the PC, and this sort of started with the Amiga and the Atari ST. I know there's folks that are probably listening in that had the Atari and had the Amiga. The, the whole, whole idea of tracking was that you would take short samples. It was similar to sequencing that was already being done by a lot of sort of hip-hop artists and other folks, but you would take very short, because computers could only use very short samples. So a very short sample of digitized audio, 8-bit, like really crusty, crunchy-sounding audio, but you'd put that together. So you'd have a sample that might be like a meep, and it was like a little lead meep, and then you'd just program it. So you'd literally go in with your keyboard and you program on your screen. I used a, a program called Scream Tracker 3 on the PC. And you'd go, uh, I want a C2, and then I want a D2, and then I want an E2. And you'd go, dit, dit, dit. And you'd program this in painstakingly, line by line. It was like a cross between music and writing code. <laughs> it was a really interesting experience. But at the end of it, you could basically select up to, and look, it got up to 64 tracks, but it started with like four tracks and then eight tracks, 16, 64. You could program all these tracks and you could bring in a bunch of different samples. And because the size of the file was only the size of the sample, you were just triggering it multiple times. You could actually create these quite exquisitely complex arrangements arrangements using just these little samples. Now, like most sampling, it, it had its problems and its limitations because the length of the sample would change. If you pitched it higher, it would be faster. So you could only use very short samples. Otherwise, your timing went all out of whack. But it was definitely a fun way to start creating music on a digital platform. And then you've heard all of this story. I went in, I got something called Cakewalk Music Creator which I used on the PC. I moved over to Reaper on the PC, and then I found GarageBand. And we've talked about that on the podcast before and on the channel. And that's really what sparked this entire channel seven years ago was that I started learning to use GarageBand on my iPhone and on my iPad. And I started sharing what I was doing. So that is the the little story of me, the story of Pete, the little little boy who could eventually. So I went from grabbing a really old tape deck, plugging in a three and a half mil microphone and recording a Casio keyboard to, uh, yeah, to showing folks how to record on your iPhone or your iPad using GarageBand, which is pretty darn cool. Let's uh, find out what some of the folks who are watching and listening to the live recording. Gregory O'Sullivan said, yes, it was a boom box uh, that he started with. Kim Harden-Hudson says, I had a boom box that recorded the room. I just converted the tape to digital. Very cool. And yes, you can you can do uh, recording uh, tapes to digital with what I'm going to show you in a little while on this very, or, or talk to you about if you're watching, the, yeah, if you're listening to the audio version. Uh, Omni Collective Creativity. I used a rectangular tape recorder that had a mono headphone jack and mic jack. Uh, had a pause switch and could change the speed of the tape there you go yeah some of those older tape decks had like speed changes 
I know a lot of the four tracks had speed change, which could let you do some really funky stuff, which was cool. Thomas Christ, I would record to various cassette recorders until I got a mini disc deck. There you go. Mini disc for the win there, Thomas Christ. Brad Example had a little grey four track Tascam, was really awesome. Then went to the D90 Fostech, which also had an eight track, also had an eight track quarter inch. There you go, quarter inch tape recorder. We did two records on that thing, but when I went to digital, I started to get lost. Till I found Pete. Well, thank you. Thank you, Brad. Good to have you on board. Uh, yeah, Gary Hubbard says tape, uh, tape cassette deck. <laughs> and my dad had an enormous early 80s stereo cabinet that had two quarter inch inputs. And uh, oh, the VU meters were amazing, weren't they? Yeah, watching those VU meters bounce around. Yeah, nothing quite like it. Uh, we don't get a lot of that today. I mean, a lot of it's uh, re recreated through some of the, the analog looking gear we have, but there's nothing quite like watching those old school VU meters bounce about. The Falcro says, a cassette recorder of my mother's into the mic that came with the cassette recorder. There you go. Uh, Lou Reality says, I think I recorded from a live performance set up directly into a recordable CD. Wow, unless you want to count the cassette tape joke music my bro and I did. There you go. Uh, Yonder Blue said I had a Fostex X26 multi-track cassette recorder, but my first tape recorder was a Philips mono reel-to-reel with a green magnetic eye as a VU meter. There you go. See, they they really tried uh, back in the day. They tried to make things uh, very different, didn't they? Uh, Kaolo Rocks, I uh, used a Tascam DP008. Still have it since it's portable. There you go. I love it. Uh, Lurielli says my dad had a reel-to-reel, but I was not, not allowed to touch it. Yeah, I hear. I hear you. And uh, Yander Blue said my first encounter of that kind with MIDI was the Atari 1040ST with Cubase. Yeah. A lot of folks don't realize that a lot of stuff we use today came out of this stuff. Like Cubase was on the Atari ST in the 90s, I reckon, or at least, yeah, it was, would have been the 90s. And then it was adapted, obviously, for the PC. And now, you know, I, the song I just released was made using Cubases on my iPad. So a lot of this stuff has been around and been evolving for a very long time. Uh, Joe and Barry Glenn had a TIAC four-track. Yeah, a lot of folks had the, the TIAC, the Tascam four-track recorders, and uh, those things were solid. And uh, the, usually the only problem with them these days is that the belts go. And I've actually got, I've actually got an old Yamaha upstairs that I bought from a, a pawn shop, not that sort of pawn shop, a, a P-A-W-N shop for uh, 20 bucks. And they said not working, but all the electronics seem perfect. The tape's just not spinning. So I need to find someone that knows about tape belts. <laughs> anyone, in, anyone listening or watching in the Adelaide area that knows about uh, tape belts for uh, old four tracks, because it's kind of hard to find people that know this stuff these days. Um, it's uh, it's it's interesting. Um, let's uh, let's continue on. Uh, so that I just wanted to get a little bit retro with that. If you if you're listening on the replay or watching the replay wherever you are, uh, please go ahead and leave your comments or just email me. I love getting stories. Some people will hear these sort of rants and then they'll send me an email and it'll be like a picture of their original four track recorder. And I love seeing stuff like that. It's very very cool. So feel free to reach out, leave comments. Speaking of leaving comments, if you uh, are enjoying the show and you're watching here on YouTube, the little thumbs up button down below is always appreciated. And if you're listening on the audio version, feel free to leave a review on your podcatcher of choice. So uh, five stars always preferred, but you know what? Not everything in life is perfect. In fact, we'll talk about that in a little while, that perfection is not only unrealistic, it is simply unachievable. There is no such thing as perfection. Let's continue the retro vibe here for a little while, shall we? And talk about capturing analog. And I'm talking capturing analog video, but the same applies for analog audio because you can use the gear I'm about to show you to capture 
anything that has an analog output. So whether it's an old cassette deck, whether it's a VHS recorder, whether it's your camcorder, whether it's a, an old DVD rewritable record, I don't know, anything that has the ability to send analog out. And here's the problem. Digital is super easy to capture. Whether you're using a PC or a Mac, it's quite simple to capture your digital footage because there's, for a long time, and I'm, I'm going to hold something up, but it's going to be down in the description if you're watching on the replay and in the show notes if you're watching, if you're listening, but it is an HDMI video capture device. Now, you can spend up to $100, $200, $300 on these, but the one I'm holding in my hand is a very generic version. They sell a heap of different versions of these. It has an HDMI port in one end and it has a USB plug on the other. And this allows you to plug this one little device into the USB port of pretty much any computer. I've used it on PCs, I've used it on Macs. It's pretty much universal. And then you can capture that footage from an HDMI source and encode it and record it and either live stream it, which is what I do. I use this device to live stream my iPad and it works really well for that. If you've ever watched GarageBand Weekly, that's exactly how I do this. I use one of these suckers. Or you can actually record it and then use it and edit it and use the footage. So this is what I used in my recent music video called Time McFlyers from my other artist name, Righty Doki. And you can check out that video over on the YouTube channel. Just search Righty Doki, which is R-I-G-H-T-Y space D-O-K-E-Y. And the song is called Time McFlyers. It is my homage to Back to the Future because what I actually did, and this will lead us on to the next part of this, is I captured some footage um, in a, in a semi-legal grey area way, I captured some original footage from the original VHS tape. So if you're watching the video, you're seeing me hold this in my hand, but for the audio folks, that's me opening an old VHS case, taking out the VHS tape. Here it is. Nice, chunky, solid VHS tape. It's an ex-rental. So I didn't get that either, Siri. I'm not going to try again, Siri. Uh, an old ex-rental tape, which means the quality was not great. But that's what I was actually looking for. I actually wanted something that was original so I could capture it, including the flaws. Because you know how a lot of people are putting those like glitch effects, those 80s VHS-style effects on their videos? Well, I figured, let's skip all that. Let's go the easy way and go with the original. So... I really need to train Siri to not talk in the middle of my podcast. Uh, I went the low-fi kind of way of actually capturing the original VHS tape. So it was a lot of fun to do, and it was super simple to do because there's three things that you need to do this. The first I've already talked about. Same thing you use to capture your digital stuff because the easiest way to get anything into your computer is HDMI to USB. So you can get devices that go RCA and analog to USB. They work sometimes okay-ish. But what I do is I get a really solid working HDMI adapter. And as, uh, as Jade and other folks are saying in the live chat here, the generic versions are much better because they seem to have better support for everything. Um, no real way to say this except to say that things like uh, iPads and iPhones and Playstations and Xboxes use um, some HDMI encoding that won't work so well with some of the brand name ones. So the generic ones that you pay about $20 for are actually the better option. I'm not saying, please, don't, don't hear what I'm not saying. I'm not saying go out there and use this for anything. Like, to be honest... In 2023, it's not really worth trying to capture anything and pirate things because everything's everywhere. Like, just go to YouTube, just go to Netflix, just go to Amazon. It's fine. Like, no one's really worrying about that, except for the companies that are. But if you just want to capture your own stuff for your own personal use, 
then uh, grab yourself one of these. The second piece of kit you'll need, and I'm holding it up here now, but all you need to search for is either an AV to HDMI or RCA to HDMI. So these little boxes retail for, again, around the $15 to $20 mark, and that's in Australian dollars. So you're paying even less. You could probably get this whole setup for less than $30 if you're in the US or probably 25, 30 quid if you're in the UK or other places. But what this does is, as per its name, it takes your HDMI, uh, sorry, it takes your RCA signal this time. So remember, your RCAs, the old yellow, white, and red, or they were sometimes different colors, but stereo audio and analog composite video. So you can get different variations that for, for um, component video or for S video, but I've found the best way to go is to use one of these that has the yellow, white, and red. They're just the most universally accepted. Not the best quality, but again, are we looking for quality here? Not exactly. You want it to be good quality, but it doesn't have to be great quality. And it has your output to HDMI. So again, not surprisingly, these two devices in conjunction with each other, you get your analog audio and video in, you then send it out via HDMI, that goes into the HDMI of your HDMI adapter, that goes into your USB port. And with two little devices, again, spending around $30 or $40, you've got yourself something that can capture everything from everywhere. So you just use the HDMI if you want to capture from an HDMI device. If you want to use an analog device, you plug in that analog extension, throw your, your, uh, your HDMI into that, and you're capturing that. Now, the third piece of the puzzle, and this is where it's been a bit of a game changer for me, there's a lot of options for encoding video, for capturing that video. The easiest one that I've found is actually free and it's called OBS, Open Broadcaster Software. Now OBS has been used by Twitch streamers and live streamers. I use it for a lot of my live stream work here and for capturing different devices, but it can actually be used in a very simple way because the way OBS works is you can throw any video and audio source plugged into your computer at OBS and tell it to record it. You can also tell it to live stream it, but you can tell it to record it as well. So all I did when I was doing my little project here is I plugged in all of that gear that I just talked about now. So I've got my RCA going into my HDMI. I then plugged my VHS recorder into the other end of the RCA. I put in my Back to the Future tape. I pressed play on tape and I pressed start recording on OBS. Now there's a little bit of behind the scenes work you need to do, and I'm working on a video at the moment to show you exactly how to do this in OBS, but you can do a little bit of Googling right now and find out yourself. All you need to do is set up a scene, because OBS works on scenes, and tell that scene to use the source. And because you're only recording one thing, it's dead simple. You just say, use this USB video as the source, and use this USB HDMI audio as the audio source. And that's it. It really is as simple as that. You're not configuring webcams. You're not configuring screen sharing. There's nothing difficult. And then just if you turn monitoring on, on your audio, which is easy enough to do there, you can actually watch and hear whatever you're recording. And then just hit the record button, record it in, and it records it in as a digital file, as an MP4 that you can then take and throw into iMovie, throw into DaVinci Resolve, throw into LumaFusion, which is what I use on iOS and edit that video down and use it, or just grab the raw footage and throw it on YouTube. If I did this a while ago, I grabbed all of my old eight millimeter camcorder tapes, I encoded all of them, and I threw them onto YouTube. 
because they're not copyrighted stuff. And then you've got a backup. So if you know you you lose your box of tapes or your house burns down, heaven forbid, then you've you've got a copy of those, and you don't even have to store them. You can actually just throw them on YouTube. Uh, some weird things will happen there. Sometimes you'll you'll find that um, yeah there'll be some background music and YouTube will flag that as copyright or content ID. So little weird things like that will happen. But for the most part, yeah, because it's not copyrighted content, it's your own stuff, you can actually encode it and store it. So hopefully that helps you out. If you've got some old, we've got someone here that uh, Kahalu Rock says, I used to have some guitar videos on VHS. As I got uh, older, I noticed I had to detune the guitar to be in tune with the video. There you go. So yeah, videos can sort of degrade over time and analog stuff degrades over time. Digital doesn't degrade. Digital is ones and zeros. So the sooner you get onto this and start encoding that old analog gear, your old analog tapes, your old analog camcorder tapes or whatever you've got, then the better. And even if you've got DVDs, you might find that it's easier to do it this way than to try and rip your DVDs digitally. Because if you just want to capture a little bit, you can just plug in your DVD player as well and use that. So very cool, very easy to do. And I used to actually use this back in the... I used a similar device 20 years ago to capture my uh, to my stuff, an audio device. I used to use audio cables to a three and a half mil jack and plug that into my sound blaster card. Because remember, the cool thing about this is this is an audio source too. So you can actually throw this at GarageBand or Audacity or anything you're using for audio and say, just record the audio. So you can, and you can use OBS to record audio too. Even if it's just coming in and it's a blank screen because you're not plugging anything into the video port, you can just plug stereo audio and use the exact same method to capture just the audio from your audio cassette. So if you've got an old tape deck, you've got an old vinyl record player, as long as it has that analog out, you are good to go. So hopefully that helps a few folks get capturing with your analog video. And again, if you head over to my gear guide, it's at studiolivetoday.com slash gear. And that is where you can find all of my gear recommendations. And I'm just in the process of updating that with all the latest analog capturing gear for you. Let's move on. We I, I mentioned it previously before. And we're, that's sort of the practical. We've gone nostalgic. We've gone the practical stuff where you might actually learn how to do something. Now we're going to talk about a little bit more of the philosophy and the psychology. Don't worry, it's not going to be scary. In fact, hopefully it'll be encouraging because... I am a card-carrying catastrophizer. That means I'm an overthinker. That means that I worry too much and I think about things. And when I think about things, I often think of what the worst-case scenario would be. So let's, uh, let's give a music example here. When I was going to play on a stage, it was my daughter's piano recital concert. And for whatever reason, the teacher knew I was a musician and wanted me to play a song as well. I was actually quite nervous about that because I'm playing in front of my family, but I'm also playing in front of a whole bunch of other people and some talented people and their parents. And yeah, so it was it was quite daunting. And as I was thinking about that, I started to catastrophize. I started thinking, what is the worst thing that could happen here? I'm like, you know what's going to happen? I'm going to get in there. I'm going to forget everything that I need to do. And then I'm going to stop breathing because I'm going to pass out. And then I'm going to headbutt the, the piano. And then I'm going to be bleeding from the head. And they're going to rush me to hospital. And then I'm going to be out of action for a week. Like, it's right. It's the way that you go through these things. And the problem is that's really unlikely. That is the least likely. But your brain flips it around and says, no, 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 no. This is almost certain. <laughs> this is almost exactly the certain thing that's going to happen. Whereas the reality is the most likely thing to happen is 
the most likely thing to happen, which is you're going to get through it and you're going to be fine. And a lot of it comes back to our fight or flight. So there's the fight, fight, flight, or freeze. So it's, you could go with the, the two Fs or the three Fs. So fight is y- y- you get aggressive and you're like, oh, when these bad things happen, I just lose my mind and I just go nuts. Flight is like, oh, something very scary, I'm going to run away. Like and that comes from our old, you know, when we were cave people and a, a tiger was about to come and maul us. You need that flight mechanism. And freeze is just like... <gasps> I'm just going to completely freeze up and do nothing because I can't even. Uh, and a lot of folks that, that, like myself, that have anxiety issues and have struggles with overthinking and worry, or at least in the past I worried too much about what other people thought, I really worked out over time that that was the majority of what I was worried about. It wasn't my own internal stuff. It was what other people were thinking and what might happen and then what other people might think about what happened. And all of that, I, I say all of that to say this, that the only way that I found <laughs> to get over this is to keep doing the things that make you a little scared. doesn't mean you have to rip the Band-Aid off. I, I, I've used the balloon analogy for a long time, and that is that uh, if you try to just blow up a balloon all in one go, the rubber gets really thin, and if you blow it up really fast and really big, it goes pop. So that's the flight, right? That's when you do th- do stuff and that's the flight mechanism because you, you jump in. You know, you ever heard that thing that's like, just throw you in the deep end? Like when, when kids used to learn to swim, they would just be thrown in the deep end and guess what? You're going to sink or swim. I'm writing a song called Sink or Swim right now, in fact. So throwing in the deep end often doesn't work because you'll either succeed or fail. But it's like, a, it's a macro thing, isn't it? Because you succeed means you can swim and you live. You fail means you sink to the bottom and they have to save you and you get scooped out. And guess what? I'm never swimming again. Whereas if you start in the shallow end, that's like blowing the balloon up a little bit. And then maybe you go to the bit where you can still touch the bottom, but it's up to your neck. And then maybe you learn how to tread water in that environment, knowing that you can still put your feet down. And then you get confident enough treading water that you can actually go to the deep end. And then you get so confident in the deep end that you're going to start diving in. So what's happening is you're expanding, you're blowing up that balloon little by little. And if you've ever, if you've got kids, this is a good tip. If you're ever blowing up a balloon, always do that. Like blow it up and then let a little bit of air out and then blow it back up because it kind of stretches the rubber and they don't pop as easily. Trust me on this one. I've had <laughs> plenty of balloon popping incidents where if you just blow them straight up, then they hit a blade of grass and they're gone. So keep that in mind. And, and I had an interesting thought this week. I was out walking. I've put it in my notes here. I was thinking about bees. And this might be a weird stretch to go from, you know, playing a concert to diving in the pool to bees. But the reason I thought about bees is that my kids are scared of bees. When they walk past a big flower bush where there's bees swarming around, they walk to the other side or they go around it or they get worried or concerned because why? They think a bee is going to sting them. And what I say to them is, how many times have you walked past a bee and been stung? And one kid, I think, has been stung once and one kid's been stung twice. And it wasn't even when they were walking past and noticing bees. It was like you're walking and a bee happens to get into your shoe and it stings the foot. I think that's one of them. So... It's almost zero chance that one of these bees is going to sting you. And I thought about it because I do a lot of walking. So you've probably seen on some of the videos here, and, and if you know me and you've chatted to me, I'm often walking around the place. And I walk for maybe one to two hours a day on average. And I see, I would have seen millions of bees by now, walked past millions of bees. Bees have landed on me, bees have touched me. One time a bee flew into my mouth. I don't tell my children about that one, but one time it did, and I spat it out onto the floor, and I'm like, ooh, that was a near miss. 
But how many times have I been stung in the last 20 years of walking through bee-infested forests and woods and parks? Zero. <laughs> Yet, every time I walk past a bee, I still think about that. I'm just like, oh, a bee may sting me. But because of the past experience I have of not being stung by bees, I realize that the chances are very high that I'm not going to get stung by a bee. And I thought about that and thought, that's a good analogy to go with because it it just means that if you keep doing things, you build that muscle, everything's a muscle, including the courage you have to do things. So the more you do them, the more you realize that you are not going to pass out. You're not going to fall down. Not Everyone's not going to laugh at you. So whether, it's, whether you're thinking about doing live streaming, playing a gig, uh, recording a song, sharing music for the first time, just think about that. Like, are you really going to get stung? Is it really going to be the worst case scenario? And look, sometimes it is. People that want to live on the negative will say, yeah, but you've got to prepare yourself because sometimes it could be the worst. I'm like, well, yeah, but usually, uh, unfortunately, the way life usually works is they're the things that do swipe you from left field that you're not going to know about and there's nothing you can do to prepare for that. So as long as you're putting your best foot forward to do the right things, yeah, why, why, why spend your time? It's the old adage of like, give me the courage to worry about, to work on the things that I can control and the knowledge to know the difference between what I can and can't control. So, yes, and as Thomas Christ says, the only way to be sure is to stay inside and never leave. Uh, slight side note, uh, there's a great song by The Lonely Island called YOLO called You Only Live Once. Go look it up. Go look up YOLO. Uh, even if you're not a, a Lonely Island fan, it's a really funny song because it's all about how you only live once. So it's like, stay inside your home, wrap yourself in uh, in bubble wrap and don't ever do anything because, yeah, it's... it's and look, that's one way to choose to live your life is to live in constant fear and loathing. But uh, yeah, it's probably better to just go out there and try things. And look, I'm not saying this to say that I'm perfect and I never get this wrong. I get this wrong all the time. There's things that I'm still scared of. There's things that I should be doing that I'm not doing. But uh, hopefully if it's if music, if you're having this block with your music, it's one thing that I don't know of anyone who has had a catastrophic thing happen by sharing music. Yeah, you're going to get a troll that might come and have a go at you. Yeah, you might get some people that say you're worthless and you should never create music again. As long as you've got the strength to know to reject that, then you'll be absolutely fine. No bee stings and great experiences sharing your music. That's a good segue because I wanted to talk. I wanted to talk about uh, internet trolls. Now, you can call them what you want. You can call them trolls. You can call them negative people. You can call them haters. You can call them spammers. You can call them just D-words. The thing is, they're still out there. And I'm actually surprised by this. I'm, I'm, I'm surprised and saddened by folks that spend their time, instead of building other people up, bringing other people down. And I've talked about this umpteen times, but I know that there's new folks that come into the community and I know that there's folks that maybe haven't heard me rant about this or maybe struggling with this right now or on the verge of sharing things and sharing their art, but don't want to do it because this one time they saw this one person that did it and this one internet troll told them that they were terrible and they never created again. And I don't want that to happen to me. That's valid. That's what you're thinking. But it really shouldn't be because... What's a nice way to say this? There is only a few reasons why people do this and virtually none of them are about you. 
So the number one thing I say to people that are struggling with sharing things or they're struggling with people that are trolling them or they're struggling with negative people that are putting them down, that are bullying them, that are saying bad things about them is there's an almost 0% chance that this has anything to do with you, your music, what you're creating and your input into things. Because even like there, there are people that are at the very beginning of their journey that have a long way to go, but there's still zero excuse. A a successful person that is confident in their own skin, that is creating their own music, there is zero chance that they are going to start picking on, start trolling, start putting down someone, especially someone who's a beginner, who's at the start of their journey. Because it, there's no need for it. The number one reasons that I've seen when you scratch the surface is, it's, it's twofold. It's that some people are very unsure of their own abilities and they mask that they hide that behind a f air of superiority whereas really inside they are feeling inferior so they feel that by pushing other people down it's going to keep them even if their level is mediocre because they think that they're not actually as good as they're maybe portraying by pushing other people down or being perceived to push other people down it makes them feel better it makes them feel like they're doing better the related thing to that is a deep-seated dislike of themselves and of what they're doing. So that's kind of the sad cousin of that one is maybe they're not really just pushing down because they're aware of it. Maybe it's a 100% a defense mechanism because they are actually feeling super vulnerable. Maybe they've had bad experiences or trauma in the, their lives and the only way they know, the only way they've learned to actually deal with other people is to push down. Instead of build up, is to push people down. The third one is the old green-eyed monster, the old jealousy. And again, I, I, I've been listening to a lot of the masterclass. They're really fabulous. Look, they're not cheap. I spend about $400 a year. I think it's like $250, $300 American, about $400 Australian a year to subscribe to masterclass because I love hearing from people at the absolute top of their game. And I've listened to Hans Zimmer who is amazing composer, wrote the Simpsons movie score and Jurassic Park and all this amazing stuff. Was it Jurassic Park? No. What was it? Someone will correct me. <laughs> but he's written amazing scores. I've listened to Tom Morello, one of my favorite guitarists, probably the best guitarist in the world. I've listened to Sheena E, who is an amazing percussionist, multi-instrumentalist, Grammy Award winning artist. And every single one of them don't have any care factor about what people are doing. In fact, they all said... Like Hans Zimmer said it beautifully. He was like, I don't worry about what other people are doing because that distracts me from me creating my best work. And I 100% admit that it's probably an 18-year-old on a laptop that's going to do what I'm doing right now. And I, I don't have to worry about that. I'm just going to keep doing the best that I can do and wish them all the success because that's the problem. Professionals, artists, successful folks... They don't want less people doing what they're doing. They want more successful people. What is the old adage? Like the, the high tide raises all ships. So someone who is actually doing it, who's actually getting it done, they're not looking sideways. They're not trying to desperately push other people down. They're trying to build other people up because they want the whole industry. They want people to be creating music. They want to be mentors for the next generation of creators. So every single time you see or hear a negative comment, and look, don't hear what I'm not saying again. Negative comment doesn't mean you can't get criticism. I love constructive feedback when it comes to music. I don't want us to all live the American Idol life. 
I don't want everyone to say everything's wonderful and marvelous and great when it's not. As I mentioned at the very start, a lot of people are beginners. A lot of people at the very start of their creative journey. And they're not going to be as good as someone who is five years, 10 years, 20 years in. But if they find the right people that are 20 years in that can coach and mentor and develop them in a way that is going to encourage, it's going to build them up, it's going to tell them what they're doing well and tell them where their gaps are, that maybe they've got blind spots, that's only going to help. That's only going to help everyone. And hey, you can call me a hippy dippy, you can say it's all woo woo Johns and you're living in a fantasy land. But if you want the proof in the pudding, just look at the professionals. Just look at the people who are actually making it. And unfortunately, I'll say this one final thing. When you go, next time you see a comment from someone on YouTube, on Facebook, on anywhere, that are like, man, this is terrible. I can't believe your vocals are so bad and your mix is terrible and you need to master this. Go and look at their profile. Go and look at their YouTube channel. Go and look at their SoundCloud. Go and look at their Facebook what are they sharing? What are they creating? 99 times out of 100, it'll not be much. And sometimes you'll look at it and go, ooh, yeah, okay. It kind of puts it in context now that I've seen what you're creating because you're probably about the same level as me. And the reason that you're having a go at me is because you're probably thinking, oh, this guy's just starting and he's already a bit better than me. Oh, this is not good. Push down. Yeah. Woo-woo is good, exactly, <laughs> says Cat-Cat uh, in the chat. I'm going to Cat-Cat in the chat, sounds good. All right, uh, we are going to continue on. Yes, Thomas Christ says in the chat, they got nothing, generally. And again, I, I do feel, I do feel, I'm an empath, so I do feel genuine empathy for folks, but I also don't have time or energy to, I'm, I'm not their therapist, I'm not here to psychoanalyze them, so the, the number one thing to do is to just share in, in places where people are going to build you up. And that again, uh, please, that doesn't mean don't give constructive feedback. Do. Don't just tell someone that their stuff doesn't stink when it's pretty stinky. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's, uh, let's move on and, uh, and talk about more things. Uh, the next thing I've got here on my list is comfort words. Now, I don't know how I've done with this because I did mean to mention this earlier in the show. But one of the things I learned about really early on, and if you are a communicator, and let's be honest, if you're a songwriter, if you're a musician, whoever you are, whatever you're doing, you're probably communicating in some way. And the number one thing when you're communicating is to be clear. And the number one thing that a lot of folks do wrong, and I did wrong when I started out, was talking too quickly was thinking that every time there is not sound coming out of your face, uh, you need to um, use like another word. And it's really difficult to learn, but it is a skill that I'm still working on. I go through phases and in the last week, I've physically focused on slowing down and being really thoughtful about the words that are coming out of my face hole. Because it's really easy, especially when you're multitasking. So when I'm doing a show like this, I've got to make sure recording levels are right. I've got to check things I'm displaying on the screen. I've got to keep up with the chat, the live folks that are saying cool things here to make sure I'm not missing anything. I've got to do a lot of things at once. And a lot of the time, I'll start rushing. And even when I'm doing a live performance, I've listened to my performance. And if I start a song at 100 BPM, by the time I get to the end, I'm at like 120 because I'm rushing. And this does a couple of things. Number one, 
you are not sounding as slow to other people as you sound in your head because the way your brain is processing the words you're saying is different to what other people are hearing. So a one second pause is this. And in the context of you listening to that, a one second pause, even a two second pause is not actually that unnatural. But in your head, my goodness, how much does that feel like dead air? It feels really uncomfortable. Yet if you listen back to it afterwards, it's actually not the case. So I'm working on this with my kids at the moment. My daughter's comfort word is like. So she'll be telling me a story and she'll be like, so dad, like I, uh, I went to school today and uh, this girl was like, uh, you, need to do, you need to do your hair differently. And like, I went, I don't know why hair. And I like, uh, went, so she's got a comfort word of like. My comfort word is not even a word, it's a sound. It's er. Uh. And especially if you go back a year, two years, three years, four years, oh my goodness, the amount of errs in my speaking was amazing. So I, I started going back and listening and counting and just hearing how many times I use my comfort word. And to be honest, as I was learning about this stuff, I was still in the corporate world. And it's interesting, if you're, if you're bored in a meeting, do this, because we've all been in there. We've all been in boring meetings, whether they're Zoom meetings or meetings in person. And not, not to make fun of people, but looking at what other people are doing can often help ourselves and our confidence and the way we communicate and deliver information. But listen to folks and see if you can identify, do they have a comfort word or a comfort sound? And what is it? And then if you want to have some fun, count how many times they use it. But I've had people that I've worked with that have had so many different things. One, one person had, you know, you know. So they were like, see, like. See, I use like a little bit as well. So they would say, I just, uh, I just completed that report, you know. Uh, and like, it was almost like a, a comfort thing. They would say, you know, as if like to keep you nodding along because maybe they've talked to people in the past that weren't paying attention. So they're kind of like checking in, you know. Know what I'm saying? Know what I'm saying? <laughs> <laughs> uh, for other people, it's ums and ahs and ers like me. For other people, it may be just a random word you don't even know about. So here's the, the job. Here's your task. Record yourself talking. It's a fun thing to do. Even if you're not doing it for a podcast or a live stream or whatever it is, it will help you in a lot of facets of your life in communication. Because again, if you're a musician, you want to be communicating effectively. And we've all been to those gigs where the person who's an amazing lead singer, but they've got zero charisma because they have zero ability to communicate with an audience. And a lot of it comes down to the confidence with how they're delivering what they're saying. So the difference between a band getting on stage and the lead singer going, thanks for being here, folks. We're super excited to be here. We're going to kick off with our brand new song. This is a new song called Time It Flies. I think you're going to dig it. Versus... Hi, um, we're we're uh, we're Righty Dokey, um, uh, and uh, we're 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 glad to be here, and we're, we're gonna we're gonna play a new song. Uh, uh, some of you might not like it, but uh, because it's it's a little bit synthy and it's a little bit different to what we've done in the past. So uh, y yeah, let's go. Okay, <laughs> who would you want to go see? You want to go see the person that's got the clear speech, not someone that's going to be uh, bumbling mumbling over their words. So, is that something that you're going to be able to do overnight? Is that going to be something that everyone wants to do? No, it's an ongoing lifelong journey. Like I said at the very start, I go through phases and periods where I'll listen back and I'll be, hang on, 
How many earths did I just say in that sentence? Why am I talking so fast? What, what, what sort of time frame am I on? And look, I do things like this. I do a podcast where I do have a time frame. So I can't talk too slowly, but being understandable and being clear, it'll be a game changer for you. I promise you. Princess LDG here says, I say totally a lot. <laughs> Omni Collective Minds, like, um, and just. Just is interesting. There you go. Uh, Thomas Christ says, I hear t total pro broadcasters who've been on radio and YouTube for years who say, ah, uh, constantly, and it's not a killer in my opinion. And it's not, because you can still have that, and it's very different. In a two-way conversation, it is more appropriate. So for sports broadcasters in particular, you'll hear that because one person will be talking and the other one will say, so, uh, so I'm trying to think of it. So Zabita has been on a bit of a roll lately. Uh, he's, he's scored goals in the, the last three, match, three games. So sometimes you, you do need to use it as more of a tool to stop people from doing it, stop people from cutting in when you're trying to speak. So sometimes it's the same in meetings. Sometimes you'll be like, um, and it can actually give you that thinking time. So it's probably less of a problem there. Where it becomes a problem is where it distracts from the content. So that's my concern is, is it distracting from the content? And sometimes you won't realize that because you are delivering. And unless you listen to it back, it's the, the old thing to say to get comfortable with your own voice. You just got to listen to it. No one likes the sound of their own voice when it's recorded. The first time you hear it, you're like, I don't sound like that. It's so nasally. Why is my lisp so bad? And then you listen to it the second time, you're like, ah, oh, I guess it's not too bad. And then by the third time, you go, oh, actually, it's fine. Princess LDG, I do, like, seriously, like, you know, whatever. <laughs> Thomas does the ah uh, thing too much. Yeah, oh, mine's er, uh, some people are ah, uh, but it's okay. Uh, Jules says, it's the ah uh, at the end of speaking that makes me a bad speaker. Uh, yeah, and that can that can be the case, that sometimes you just get to the end and you'll, you'll say something. And have you noticed, um, see, I just used an um there. See, I was thinking, I was thinking about how I was going to phrase this. And I said, have you noticed, um, that's not terrible, but what's wrong with just a pause? Have you noticed that sometimes, see, now I forgot my complete train of thought. <laughs> no, what I was going to say, have you noticed that a lot of people now use the phrase or as like a a waiting word. It's almost like a question mark. So they'll say, so should we get burgers or like burgers or what? You haven't given an option, but you've just ended on the or. So it's like, oh, should I use Pro Tools or GarageBand is what you should use. <laughs> so sometimes you, you hear that and I've been hearing that more and more that people just end with an or. And I'm like, or what? What's my other option? So you just want, so you're asking, it's actually a statement. Should we have burgers? Yes, let's have burgers. But I guess it's it's saying that, but saying, it's almost adding a, I don't really care what the answer is. And if you've got another suggestion. So yeah, should we, should we take the car or? No, let's walk. Okay, fair enough. Anyway, I go off on weird tangents like this. Welcome to the podcast. Uh, I could call it uh, tangential studio life today because we're all about the tangents. All right. Um, Related to all of that, I wanted to talk about perfection. I alluded to it earlier on, but uh, while we're while we're psychoanalyzing everything we're doing and uh, and judging ourselves, <laughs> I want you to not judge yourself. 
Because the thing is, all of the things we've talked about here, the way you deal with internet trolls, the way you catastrophize, the way you use your comfort words, they're not going to be perfect. They're never going to be perfect. Perfection does not exist. Number one, because it's subjective. What you consider perfect, I might consider imperfect. And number two, it's just not worth striving for because the what you think might be perfection in your mind usually takes so much more effort to go from 90% to 100% that it's often not worth the ride. It's often not worth the extra time to do it. Now, am I saying you should strive for 90% in everything you do? Well, no, but there's some things and there's sometimes you do things that leaving a couple of those imperfections in there actually humanizes it. Because let's be honest, a lot of people are talking about AI right now and chat GPT and these engines and they're saying, these things are not perfect. They get things wrong. Well, A, so do humans, but B, imperfections are okay. Now, factual imperfections, yeah, they need to work on that. But the I was listening to a podcast the other day talking about chat GPT and what the AI engines are actually doing with that is that they're being trained to say the second most perfect thing. So they'll rank what, the way an AI text generator works is it just puts a word out there and then it guesses. It works out what the next most appropriate word to form a sentence about whatever the topic is you've given it. But it doesn't always pick that perfect word. Sometimes it will pick the second best or the third best word to create that variety. That's why when you press the submit button, it doesn't give you the same thing every time. There's some RNG, there's some random number generator going on in there that's actually changing it up. And that's, again, probably what people are worried about because that's humanizing. It's like in music. If you've ever used quantization, quantization creates, quote unquote, perfect rhythm. So if you play a piano part in and you quantize it, it is perfect because every note you play is the exact correct length and it starts on the exact correct beat. Does it sound better than a piano piece that's played by a human? No, not in my opinion. (laughs) I think it actually sounds worse because it sounds so mechanical and music is not meant to be mechanical. It is meant to flow and ebb and sit in the pocket and groove. And only a human can do that. I mean, quantization has tried. There is humanize, (laughs) which is weird. Going to a machine and pressing a humanize button is the weirdest juxtaposition, mind-bending thing because we're asking a machine to be more human. But there are humanized functions, which all they do is exactly what the the text engines do. They randomize, they slightly imperfect some of the things that you're doing in your quantization. As uh, Jan de Blue says here, the Pareto rule, if you've ever worked uh, on the Pareto principle, the Pareto rule says 80% of what you do takes 20% of your time and vice versa. So it's that last 20% that we often strive for. And sometimes you'll want that. Sometimes you'll want to dot every I and cross every T. If you're writing your thesis, am I telling you to go the 80%? No, you'll probably have to spend 80% of your time doing that 20% that is going to make sure that you actually get that doctorate. However, if you are doing something that doesn't require, if you're writing an email, my emails are 80% good and that's fine. In the past, I would spend 80% of my time rejigging a couple of words here and there to just make sure that everything got across exactly the way I wanted to. And then I realized that no one else was caring. I was wasting my time and I could get a whole lot more productive stuff done 
if I just went with it. The same can go for your music and trying to achieve perfection. I've got a guitar solo at the moment in a song. And when I listen to it, I'm like, oh, there's a little pick scrape there. And there's a little bit of feedback there. I better re-record that. And then I've listened to it another four or five times. And now that little pick scrape and that little bit of feedback are kind of my favorite parts. They're the bits that go, this wasn't programmed by a on a virtual guitar by a robot. This was a human that was in the groove. And if you saw me record that guitar solo, I probably had my weird lead guitar face on. It was someone recording and it was a real piece of art. And that's what we're looking for, isn't it? We want that human. If you're, if you're raging against the machine with the AI stuff, at least stop chasing perfection in your own stuff because that's where the humans are going to come through. And that's why Hans Zimmer is going to write a better score than AI Music Generator 4.0, because he's got that human aspect. He can talk to the director. He can watch the movie. He can generate that feel, that atmosphere that is relevant for that scene. Computers, at least for now, can't really do that. So that's the way I uh, Thomas Christ says, this is where Rick Beato is right. The ability to edit music to near perfection has taken a lot of the human feel out of it. Correct. And the grid. I, I believe, that I, was, I was watching this, I've talked about it, I think, recently on a podcast, but there's a great series on Vice TV called The Story Of, and I was watching it with my wife, and we watched the Vanessa Carlton, A Thousand Miles and that song is so great because the piano riff at the start, you'll know it if you hear it. That bit is played free time. Then when the drums and the bass kick in, yeah, then they've got to be in the groove and they've got to be more on a more on a beat. But if she played that opening piano riff to a click, the song would sound completely different. It would not have the same feel that it has. So she just recorded that and they're like, all right, here's your, here's your click, Vanessa. She's like, it just doesn't work. As Tedmus says here, it's called character. It's character that you want to add to your song. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to be on the grid. It doesn't have to be anything you don't want it to be. So I say all that to say perfection, Patui, stop chasing it, stop going for it. It is not feasible. It's not realistic. It's not something that you are ever going to achieve, so you might as well get used to it. Does it mean that you shouldn't keep striving to do your best? No, but just like when my children come home and they say, Dad, I got 18 out of 20 on my spelling test, and I say, bloody marvellous, you should also say, hey, this song is 98% where I want it to be. That is also bloody marvellous. All right, uh, we've got a little question time section here. So if you are listening live to the show and you have a question, please go ahead and throw your question in the chat. We've had uh, one come through here, which is related to what we've been chatting about here today. And it comes to us from The Falcro, who says, uh, recording exactly what I'm about to start doing that very thing, but I need to figure out which dongle I need for the iPad. Yeah, so that's a, a really interesting question. So the Falco is talking about capturing video on iPad. This is unfortunately one of the limitations of an iPad is that you can put audio into it. You can plug in any sort of audio interface. You can send video out of it via HDMI. I personally haven't found a great way slash any way to capture video on the iPad or the iPhone. So 
I hate to be the bearer of bad news here, and if someone's got a way to do it, please let me know. But it's been what a lot of people... There are some apps that you have to use a third-party app and then a third-party device, and you can somehow hook up webcams or capture video. But a lot of folks want to use, say, a DSLR camera or a mirrorless camera or even a webcam with their iPad or iPhone. But what Apple have basically said is, we want you to use the camera on the iPhone or the iPad. We've given you a great camera on there. You shouldn't need anything else. So unfortunately, a bit like live streaming, there's two things that iOS can't do. And I know a lot of people say to me, iOS can do everything. It can do most things. But live streaming music through the web browser, what I'm doing right now through StreamYard, if I was trying to do this through an iPad, I wouldn't get the same audio quality because of WebKit and because of the web browser on iOS. And number two is it doesn't capture video. So whether it's a webcam, whether it's an external video source, I haven't found a good way to capture video apart from using a Mac or a PC. So, and you can, as Yonder Blue says here, you can screen record. So you can screen record your iPad. So anything that you're playing on your iPad, you can do. So if you can find an app or you can find a way to get it playing on there, you can do that. But the challenge still remains, how do you get that input? So uh, as opposed to using the dongles, the, the AV to, to HDMI and the HDMI to USB, how do you actually then get that into your iPad or iPhone? I haven't found an HDMI input or an RCA or any sort of video input for iPad. So hopefully. Uh, question from Puck Jones. Uh, do you move projects from GarageBand iOS to Mac or Logic at some point? Sometimes I have been known to. I generally finish them off on iOS, to be honest, but I'm, I, I have a pretty simple workflow and pretty simple recording strategy, so I don't need a lot of tracks, I don't need a lot of effects, I don't use a heap of automation. If I did want to do a lot of those things, say I was automating effects, or say I wanted to do something elaborate with some plugins that are only on desktop, then yeah, I'd, I'd move it over. And, and iOS, GarageBand actually makes it super simple to go from iOS to Mac. Doesn't make it as easy to go from Mac to iOS. You can do it. And if you want to learn how, if you go to your YouTube and search Pete John's GarageBand Mac to iOS, there is a video on the channel where I show you how to do that. So you can do it. It's a little clunky. So the, the short version of it is that what you need to do is you need to send the project from Mac over to iOS as an iOS project. You then record on iOS and then when you open it back up on your Mac, it'll add those tracks. But on iOS, it'll only appear as a single stereo track. So you won't get all the tracks going from Mac to iOS because it's not compatible with a lot of the stuff. So what I talked about before, effects automation and other things that are Mac only won't translate. So it just sends a stereo file. But you can then grab your iPad, record in your Alchemy synth tracks, record in anything that you can't do on Mac. And then when you reopen it, it goes back to the Mac, it'll have those tracks in there. So it is kind of cool to do it that way. I uh, think there was one other question that we had there. Where did I see it? I missed It's from Princess LDG. How much time do you spend on music? I'm a busy student and only have one hour now. Yeah, so you might have noticed that I'm working on a song at the moment where I'm only spending one show a week on it. And I'm doing that because I want, basically I wasn't creating music, but I wanted to show folks that even if you're a weekend warrior, even if you're a student and you're crushing it with the study and you've only got an hour or I'm spending about an hour and a half a week on it, 
you can still make progress. So over the last five weeks, we've written the song, we've recorded the demo, we've recorded the guitars, we've done some scratch vocals, we've got some drums in there now, thanks to Jade Starr who helped create those. And now we're about to record vocals in a couple of days and then we're going to mix and master it. So in the space of about six, seven weeks, at just an hour to an hour and a half per week, yeah, we're going to get a whole song done. So I'm trying to show that, yeah, utilize those bits of time. It doesn't matter if you've got only 10 minutes or 15 or 30 minutes. Yeah, it's going to take you longer overall, but consistency is better than just being able to throw everything at it. So if you can consistently spend a bit of time creating music and doing something in the creative space, it'll eventually build into a song. You'll have it done in the end. So there you go. Sebastian says uh, Australians must speak slower because they are walking on hands. Ha ha, but right? Yes, we're up here. Some people don't think Australia actually exists because we're uh, we're part of the whole conspiracy. <laughs> we're part of the conspiracy of that. Uh, question from uh, we'll answer one more question and then we do have to wrap things up because we're uh, we're over the hour mark. We're going to turn into a pumpkin here if we go too long. A question from uh, Inoki says, hello, are USB outputs on amps able to connect to GarageBand? I have a Boss Katana amp. Thanks. So yes, sort of. So if you've got a USB audio interface, all you need for iPad or iPhone is for a lightning based iPhone you need or an iPad, you need a lightning to USB 3 adapter. And for a USB-C, you need a USB-C to USB adapter. Now, if the amp, and I think the Boss Katanas are like this, if it basically has a built-in audio interface, that will work. So a lot of amps have a built-in audio interface, meaning when you plug your guitar in, it takes that analog signal, it digitizes that, and then you can send that out to your DAW. So you could plug that into a Mac or a PC, and it would work. So if it works with a Mac or a PC, it should work with iOS. The one factor to consider is if it requires drivers, so if there's software that came with it that you need to install on your Mac or your PC that has drivers, specific custom drivers, then it won't work. It needs to be what's called class compliant. And unfortunately, it can be a little tricky to work out what is and isn't class compliant. Sometimes you get a device and you plug it in and it works beautifully. Sometimes it just won't show up at all because it turns out that there's a specific driver that you need to download and use. And unfortunately, iOS, iPads and iPhones don't support audio gear that requires a driver. So if you check the details, check the manual or go online and check if it is class compliant or if it is uh, iPad or iPhone compliant, it'll usually say something like that, or driverless, if it has a driverless mode, that's what you're looking for. And if it is, if that's the case, then yep, you'll be absolutely fine. Otherwise, you'll need to take a, get a, a separate audio interface and then use the analog output of your amp or get a microphone and mic up your amp. So you have to go a bit more old school analog style, but it's worth a try. And it's a handy piece of kit to have anyway, the lightning to USB 3 adapter for your lightning based stuff or a USB-C to USB adapter. Hope that helps out. All right. Uh, that is going to do it for this particular show. But before we go, a little bit about what's coming up 
on Studio Live today. So in the last week, uh, we had all the usual live shows as well as my brand new video that's just dropped. So again, you can check that one out. It'll be in the show notes. It'll be in the description. It is called Time McFlyers. It's from my experimental band called Righty Doki. Coming up this week, though, we've got some cool stuff on the podcast next week. Or if you're listening in the past, just hit the next button and go to the next podcast. We've got Patrick from the Garage Band Guy, which should be a heap of fun. Always good to catch up with Patrick and talk all things Apple and GarageBand and Mac and iOS. Always have a blast with Patrick. This weekend on the show, we've got uh, an original happy hour. So you can catch that one if you're listening to this one live or uh, close to live. Then you can catch me doing some original songs. And in GarageBand Weekly, we are doing vocals. So we're tracking vocals. If you like to see an old man yell into a microphone, come along because we're recording some punk vocals. And of course, the flagship show here on Studio Live today is called Your Music Live. And it happens every Sunday afternoon at 2 p.m. Pacific, 5 p.m. Eastern, 10 p.m. UTC, and 9 a.m. for our friends on the east coast of Australia. Now, those times will change as we come into daylight savings. It sort of could jig us around by an hour or two here and there. So the best way to keep up with everything is to make sure you're on the mailing list at studiolivetoday.com slash email. You'll get all the links to all the shows. You can set reminders, any changes, you'll get that. And I promise I don't spam you. It is once a week. It is a once a week newsletter. And it's like one page just with a bunch of information, all the links, and you can get yourself set up for a week here on studio live today thank you folks for tuning in it's been a blast i hope you got some value out of some of the topics got a bit nostalgic there and hopefully you're going to go in there and punch fear in the face go run through a field of bees well, no don't do that especially if you are allergic don't don't do that but hopefully that you can get out there stop catastrophizing stop worrying about those internet trolls work on those comfort words like me how many errs have i said now since, since i stopped thinking about it I wonder how many ums and ers have been in the last uh, 20 minutes of this show. Be interesting to go back and see. As we say every week, please be kind to yourself this week. Be kind to others. Keep creating and I'll see you next time here on the Studio Live Today podcast. Bye for now.